from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 2nd. Today, the story behind the president's photo op, why the feds have failed to take on police, and what happened after a restaurant burned down. Outside the White House yesterday, there had been peaceful protests. Ashley Parker covers the White House for The Post. You know, you can't right now get exactly up to the White House, but they were in Lafayette Park across from the White House. Some people were singing. Someone was painting on an easel. And then there was a curfew in D.C. for 7 p.m. And the president on Monday had made the last minute decision to address the nation from the Rose Garden. And shortly before the president was scheduled to speak... Authorities basically began clearing the protests using tear gas, using flash grenades, and the scene very quickly devolved into mayhem. And it created this striking split screen with the president. Thank you very much. My fellow Americans, my first and highest duty. You have the president beginning to speak from the Rose Garden. You could hear the flash grenades going off. By the brutal death of George Floyd. My administration is fully committed. You could smell a bit of the tear gas. You could hear what was going on. Protesters screaming, coughing, some of them vomiting, running away, and both happening simultaneously. And why were police trying to clear the area around the White House if the president was going to be speaking from the Rose Garden and that wouldn't have been affected by the protests? After the president finished speaking, he decided to basically stage a photo op where he walked from the White House with a, you know, a small cadre of senior advisors across Lafayette Park into the historic St. John's Episcopal Church where he's handed a, a black Bible. Is that your Bible? Your Bible? And he turns and he faces the cameras that he's brought with him and he holds it up in his right hand kind of awkwardly and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't really, he doesn't read from it. He doesn't quote from it from memory. He just stands there for a photo opportunity before turning and heading back to the White House. So essentially what we understand happened is that the police tear-gassed protesters to allow President Trump to have a photo op in front of this church. Basically, yes. So can you take us back a day or two of what was transpiring behind the scenes in the White House that led up to this moment and this decision to go over to this church? A number of things were happening. You have to keep in mind, and it's almost hard to remember, but that the country is actually in the middle of a deadly pandemic, right? So you have a president who is reeling from the fallout of the coronavirus, which so far has left over 100,000 Americans dead. And then after George Floyd, an unarmed black man, died in police custody in Minneapolis, the nation was then plunged into deep-seated racial unrest that led to 
riots and protests, sometimes peaceful, sometimes that turned into looting across the nation. So you have a president who feels deeply out of control. Also, his poll numbers are faltering against his Democratic rival, Joe Biden. And he's watching all of this happen on cable news. On Friday night, as protests got close to the White House, the president was briefly rushed down into a a secure bunker and he did not like the ensuing media coverage. You have to keep in mind, this is a particularly devastating criticism for him because he, for the past several months, frankly, has been painting Joe Biden as hiding in his basement, hiding in his bunker. And now the president, the leader of the United States during racial unrest is, is being accused of doing the exact same thing. And of course, there are these photos that of the White House during that time of basically all the lights turned off except for one and this appearance of no one is home at the White House. Right. And, you know, the president's critics, fairly or unfairly, basically lob that charge at him, right? You, you are a leader who is cowering in your week. And that is the thing the president hates more than anything else. So he wanted to reassert control. He wanted to show he was strong and dominant and powerful. In the meantime, on Sunday night... Again, the protests and riots continued all across the nation, including in Washington, D.C., including right outside the White House. And they did turn violent in some cases, right? Storefronts were shattered. St. John's Church was vandalized. There was graffiti on the National Monument. So you have a president who is taking this all in on television and, again, basically is very upset by the images of the streets being out of control, especially the streets in Washington, D.C., especially the streets right outside of his home. And he wakes up Monday morning and wants to do something. And again, I should also add, this is against the backdrop of an internal debate going on in the White House about should the president address the nation in some way, right? Should he play the role of urging calm? And so clearly he wanted to talk to the public, but how did he come on this idea of, I need to go to that church that was vandalized and I need to stand in front of it and and present some kind of image there? I mean, this is a president who thinks in marketing and branding and photo opportunities. And I think he thought this was the ultimate photo op. I think he thought that the images of him seeming grimly determined and resolute in the Rose Garden and striding across the street as protesters fled would help burnish the image he wants of a, of a strong man, tough guy, law and order leader. And what do we know about what the reaction to this photo has been so far, and especially among people who who are either Trump supporters or who could potentially be voting for Trump in November? So some Trump supporters and people affiliated with his world had the reaction he intended for them to have. They are sharing the image of him doing this. They're sharing basically the photo opportunity that he painstakingly set up and staged. They're saying how courageous and and bold and tough he is. But a lot of people, including some people inside the White House and including some Republicans who maybe supported him a bit hesitantly in 2016, are absolutely horrified by the images they saw. And there's also people, you know, local city officials in Washington, D.C., but also officials affiliated with St. John's Historic Church who are absolutely outraged. They say the president used the Bible as a prop. He used the church as, you know, a green screen 
backdrop. He didn't give the church any heads up. They learned about this the way the rest of the nation did on on live television, and they find it completely galling and, and immoral and devastating. So what do you think this episode shows about how Trump is thinking about the protests both in D.C. and around the country and and the role that he sees himself playing in that? The president is frustrated, angry at the protests, and he doesn't seem particularly interested in understanding the root of them, right? Not just the killing of George Floyd, but the long simmering racial animus and and inequalities and injustices in our country. And you saw Vice President Joe Biden Tuesday morning give a speech addressing that. And that's not the role the president, at least right now, believes he is supposed to play. I I talked to a former campaign advisor on his 2016 campaign who said, look, the president was reminded that he was elected not as a handholder in chief, not as a consoler in chief, but as a law and order tough guy who is going to get things done. And that's what you saw Monday night. And I wonder if part of the reason you're seeing this rhetoric from the president is because he doesn't see this role of being consoler in chief or or handholder in chief. He doesn't see it as a path toward reelection, that for the people who agree with the protests, they're probably not going to vote for him anyways. And for the people who don't, he is playing to them. I think that's right. I think it's twofold. I think at the core, you have to keep in mind that empathy does not come naturally to him. It's not something he feels comfortable with. It's not something he likes to do. It's something he can occasionally feign when reading from a script or reading from a teleprompter, but it's not core to who he is. But then to your second point, that's exactly right. Normally when presidents are elected, they believe they have their base and they understand that they, of course, have to shore up their base and try to keep the promises they made, but then they try to move to the middle, right? To win over that section of the country that maybe didn't support them the first time, but are the political independents or or the moderates, because that in general is the best path towards reelection. But Trump is someone who sort of has never tried to govern very much for the people who did not support him and did not vote for him. And always, especially in moments of of crises or, or decision, doubles and triples down on his base, right? And he would rather try to have a very animated, very excited, very motivated base that he can expand a bit than trying to expand into just a generally larger swath of the country. At least those are the policies and the rhetoric that he puts out. For whatever reason, among all of the devastating and destructive images we saw yesterday that stuck with me was there was a moment where the National Guard, at this point, the protesters are still peaceful and the National Guard, they they move towards them and then suddenly they bend down and take a knee. And our reporters on the scene write that at first the crowd cheered because they thought they were were taking a knee in solidarity, which some police forces and militaries have been doing around the country to sort of, you know, silently say, I'm I'm with you too. But then the crowd realized 
realized that the National Guard had taken a knee, had bent down so that they were able to put on their gas masks and they were preparing to tear gas, to flash grenade and advance on on the protesters. And, And so you have this moment of what they think is fleeting solidarity and then it just gives way to sheer pandemonium and and terror and that for whatever reason there's so many images that have been hard to get out of my mind over the past couple of days but that is the one that is most stuck with me ashley parker covers the white house for the post On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported that Attorney General Bill Barr had personally ordered law enforcement to clear the protesters in Lafayette Park ahead of Trump's appearance. First, we are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. A lot of state governors have deployed the National Guard to quell the unrest in various cities. But yesterday, President Trump threatened to deploy active duty military. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. I'm Matt Zapatowski. I'm a national security reporter for The Post. And is that a thing that he actually can do? Like, is there a justification for sending in U.S. troops against protesters? So legally, he can do it. Politically, it would be very, very dicey. There's this thing called the Posse Comitatus Act, which generally prohibits using military to enforce domestic laws. However, it has some exceptions, and there's another law called the Insurrection Act, which spells out exceptions to that. And in moments of unrest like this, if the president feels essentially that state residents aren't being protected, state laws aren't being enforced, he can deploy active duty military to those states. We saw that during the Rodney King riots. In that instance, the governor of California actually requested a deployment of active duty military. We also saw that at times during the civil rights movement, kind of most famously when the president deployed troops to Arkansas to facilitate the desegregation of schools there. But you said that this would be a politically dicey prospect for President Trump. Why is that? Well, I think already you have protesters who are upset at the kind of militarized police response to them, to the very aggressive crackdown. So what is escalating that crackdown going to do? You know, on some measure, sure, the military has a lot of tools and training and maybe could attempt to 
put down some of the looting and other things we've seen. But our government is kind of based on faith, you know, faith in our leaders. And what you don't want to do is have a situation where the citizen and the military are at odds, that the citizens feel like the president is using his power to oppress them rather than to just enforce the laws he doesn't feel are being enforced. Matt, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you today is also because you cover the Department of Justice. I'm tired of my black men and my black women being shot, being killed by the NYPD. And I think that when we think about why these protesters are out on the streets, why they're so outraged. I would like to see a reform of law enforcement. I would like to see full accountability for any police officer who harms a citizen. We're talking about police brutality. There has to be punitive measures. Police officers must be held accountable. The justice system can't protect them any longer. They can't pretend like this isn't happening. When things of that nature happen, such as what happened in Minnesota, the police need to be penalized. A lot of that comes back to policing tactics, not just during protests, but all the time. And you've been doing a lot of reporting on how the Department of Justice has looked at these policing tactics in the past. And I wonder if protesters are calling for this widespread change in policing. How has that looked in the past when you've had the federal government try to step in and change how policing works? So we've had moments of unrest before. If you think back to some of the fiery protests in Ferguson federal government, of course, stepped in and said they would investigate the incident that sparked that, the death of Michael Brown. But they also said, Eric Holder, who was the attorney general at the time, said that he would investigate broadly the patterns and practices of the Ferguson Police Department, how their officers were trained, how they used force, even how they treated suspects in custody in their jail. We are here today to announce the latest steps in the Justice Department's ongoing efforts to address the situation in Ferguson, Missouri. And it was part of this bigger push by the Obama administration to prompt broad reforms at police department, not to just attack individual incidents, but to force broad kind of systemic changes to use their power to affect that result. As a result of this history and following an extensive review of documented allegations and other available data, we have determined that there is a there is cause for the Justice Department to open an investigation to determine whether Ferguson police officials have engaged in a pattern or practice of violations of the United States Constitution or federal law. And what happened with those investigations? How did they end up? Yeah, so, and it wasn't just Ferguson, I guess I should say, first off. The Obama administration, during its tenure, launched 25 investigations big, sweeping investigations of local law enforcement agencies. They look at, you know, how they're trained to stop people, what they view as probable cause, what supervision they have, what equipment they have. It varies place to place, but these are really broad looks at anything that might um, be a reason that police departments are stopping too many black people or are using force too much. 
how those often played out and how that played out in Ferguson is the department issues a kind of scathing report assessing up and down what has gone wrong over the years at the Ferguson Police Department. And then they negotiate with Ferguson to enter what's called a consent decree. So this is like a legal agreement where the Ferguson Police Department says, we will make X, Y, and Z changes. And then they file that in court. And then over the years, Ferguson is kind of monitored and a court can enforce them instituting those changes. And the Obama administration did that other places too, right? Baltimore, which actually still has a consent decree going, um, Cleveland. It was other places aside from Ferguson. And so how effective were those agreements or or those changes that the federal government was working with these police departments to implement? Well, the results are kind of mixed, I have to admit. The Washington Post did a big study of these consent decrees, they're called, and their effectiveness. And it is definitely true, our review found. They definitely modernized the training and the equipment and some of the practices, but they have a little bit of a mixed record on whether they reduced the use of force or eliminated bad use of force incidents. So certainly they, they made some improvements, but these are not a silver bullet. You know, They're sort of one tool that the department can use to force some change at police departments. So this broad-level approach from the federal government to look at how different police departments are doing policing, has that continued during the Trump administration? It has not. Trump's first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, was a very public skeptic of these consent decrees. He just didn't feel like it was the federal government's role to be second-guessing local law enforcement. And it was kind of in keeping with the Trump administration's tough-on-crime stance. So you know, soon after he's sworn in, Jeff Sessions says, we're going to review all these consent decrees that we're a part of now. And on the way out, he institutes new policies that essentially make it a lot harder for the department to enter into these. The Trump administration has taken the position that, look, it's not our place to be second-guessing entire police departments. We can give them grant money. We can, you know, back the blue, so to speak. But we're not going to be trying to force reforms at the federal government level. So then how is the Department of Justice responding to what happened to George Floyd? And are they going to be doing any investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department? They're under a lot of pressure to do a broad investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department. So far, they've announced that they're conducting a civil rights investigation into the death itself. But that's different than these pattern or practice cases, which look not just at individual incidents, but at entire departments. Uh, All the Democrats on the House Judiciary has called for the department to launch a pattern or practice investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. Other civil liberties leaders similarly have, have called on the department to do that. They have not done that yet, and they've just done that so rarely in their tenure. I think there's one case that I was able to find investigating this narcotics unit in Massachusetts. It's just not a tool that the Trump administration likes to use now. So they're certainly under a lot of pressure to investigate the Minneapolis police. We'll see if they do. We'll see if that pressure sort of overcomes their stance. But so far, no, they have not announced they are doing such an investigation. So if what we're seeing from protesters now are these calls for widespread change in policing that that 
are in many ways mirror what was happening after Ferguson. But now we have a federal government that is much less willing to engage with police departments to talk about those widespread changes and to actually do something major about it. It seems like the chances are even less now than they would have been five years ago to actually have some significant change across the country. I think civil liberties advocates have very little hope of police reform. It was already a difficult thing for the federal government to force. And here you have an administration that is pretty much unwilling to be in the business of forcing it at all. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. And now, one more thing from the daughter of a business owner in Minneapolis. I'm Hafsa Islam. I'm 18. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And my family owns Gandhi Mahal Restaurant. The restaurant actually caught on fire and it was uh, burned down. Gandhi Mahal is uh, across the street from the third precinct. I was angry because, you know, this is my family's livelihood. You know, this is my family's only source of income. This is how I pay for school, things like that. But the anger that I felt for the building being burned down only lasted uh, like a few moments. Then it became the anger of why does this keep happening? Why is it that we keep losing lives? What can we do to make sure that this doesn't keep happening? I had to reconnect with the problem and the problem is these injustices and that anger that I was feeling after hearing that was that energy of, you know, we need to get justice, the anger of needing to get justice. All those families that lost people, they deserve to see justice being served. They, we can never ever return George Floyd or Trayvon Martin or any of the people, the innocent lives lost. We can never return them to their families. You know, so what our building fell down. Yes, that sucks, you know. All right, we can build it back. You know, mate, it's gonna be hard to bring it back. You know, we don't know exactly how we're gonna afford to bring our building back, but so be it, you know. We can never return George Floyd to his family. Something just needs to happen. Hafsa Islam lives in Minneapolis. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.